Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Quarantine Break podcast. We have reached episode nine. I hope you're all still keeping well and safe out there. I'm joined today by novelist and screenwriter Stephen S. Thompson. Stephen's first TV drama, Sitting in Limbo, arrives on BBC One this week and is based on his brother's experience of being detained and threatened with deportation during the Windrush scandal. It's an incredible piece of work and we chat about that and loads more. Take a listen and I'll be back at the end. Stephen, how have you been keeping? Very well, thanks. I don't know if it's like everybody else. I feel like the cloud is starting to sort of um, shift a little bit um, very, very slowly. Cautious, nervous, of course. Um, Trying to maintain the quote-unquote rules, despite all that's been happening in the media recently. (laughs) I'm not so sure if everyone is doing a a similar thing. But but the thing is, um, the nature of my daily existence hasn't really changed much since the lockdown. I seem to spend a lot of time at my desk staring at a computer, and I still seem to be doing (laughs) that. (laughs) And and, and the TV screen, which I do for research. (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, um, I try to get some exercise, as you can imagine, Um, so to keep keep the weight off a little bit. And the mental health side of things, you know, you, 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 you do what you can. You know, you go for your walks and you, and you take pleasures where you can. So, yeah, I guess like everybody else, not, not bad. I start this podcast the same way every week by asking a question that started out as a bit of an icebreaker, but I've become more invested in it as the weeks go by. Stephen, we're taking a socially distant tea break together. So how do you take your tea? I take my tea white with two sugars. That's basically classic, right? Classic. Builder's brew. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a good one. I, I always think that's the hardest question of the podcast. It's sort of, it's a chemistry test to work out if we're going to get on. I think it's going to be fine. I think it's going to be fine. <laughs> that's good to hear. <laughs> How do you take yours? <laughs> Mine, exactly the same, but without sugar. I, I used oh, to have two sugars, yeah. used to have two sugars, but I've gradually, like my personality in general, become less sweet, I think. I'd like to become less sweet, but um, despite every... <laughs> conceivable alternative you know including all the sweetness under the sun i've gone back to brown good old brown sugar and (laughs) i've just got to have it so this podcast is the podcast that takes a tea break from the world a world where opticians are currently closed so the only safe way to get your eyesight tested is to drive your wife and child 30 minutes to a tourist hotspot (laughs) it seems that stay alert was only ever meant for pedestrians so Stephen, how has your lockdown been well, I've, I've been fortunate because I live in Southampton. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware mm. of that. And um, we have a massive common nearby. Uh, depending on what time of the day you go there, it feels it feels like you're in the middle of nature. Mm. Obviously, as the lockdown has eased, it's become more and more filled up. But uh, there was a period when it was deserted, when you were allowed your statutory daily walk, if you remember that, that uh, part yeah, of the yeah. lockdown. Um, I'm sure I saw people leaving their house several times a day going over there, but anyway, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not here to shop anybody. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I used to go for my walk. I really liked it. It's funny, I was watching a bit of um, Spring Watch recently with Chris Packham. Mm. And he was talking about, you know, stopping and smelling the roses and um, admiring nature more and more, and people are making use of it. And I find myself doing that, sort of walking along going, oh, that, that, is that bird song? Whereas normally you're on your phone or you're, um, you're listening to your music on your headset. So. Um, I guess that bit of extra time has allowed me to make more of the common nearby. 
Well, yeah, I was going to ask. It's interesting that there's been so many, many negative things that have happened in lockdown. But is, is there anything that you take from this that you think once this all lifts, I would like to carry on doing that? Yeah, that, well, that the main one would be. I mean, I, I I like to go for a walk anyway to keep to try and keep fit. But the the idea of walking and being more present in your you know exercise, so it's not just about putting one foot in front of the other, sort of you know, actually looking around. And the other positive, I guess, is I found myself reaching out to people in a way that I would I was I used to make the excuse that I don't have the time, and actually quite legitimately so sometimes you just don't have the time but now when you've suddenly got all the time on your hands you you know you, you make that extra effort and other people do too and i would love to see that continue but um I'm yeah, yeah. when i have short people's <laughs> memories are so i'm not very hopeful <laughs> are you someone that's taken lockdown by the horns have you mastered spanish are you churning out cakes like a branch of greg's Good God, though, no. my, my, uh, my, what the, I'd love to, I've been even thinking about it, thinking, oh, I could take up a playing the guitar, or I could, I've watched programs that have, uh, made me think about that. I mean, I've suddenly become like, a, you know, a repair shop fan, and I like sewing bee, and I can see the attraction, but the, to actually go the next step and buy a sewing machine, and then, uh, you know, and, and become a sort of dab hand at repairing tables. Not not quite. I haven't made that leap, but I'm thinking about it. Creatively, this has been a struggle for people. Obviously, as a, as a novelist and a screenwriter, how have, how have you found this? A uh, very productive period, indeed. I mean, really? that I, I normally, you know, I'm at home writing in one way or another, but sometimes, sometimes writing can feel a bit rushed. You know, you're always up against mm. deadlines, particularly if you're writing for TV and, um, and film. But with everything shut down and production shut down and, you know, you're not able to get into physical meetings and stuff, you're at home, I found more time to write and, um, and more time to think about writing, you know, to make it really, really good. Yeah. So I guess most writers would probably agree that this has been a good period for them because they've they can luxuriate in the processes of writing. And that's what I found. Plenty of us will have been working from home now for 11 or 12 weeks, possibly for the first time, and are maybe bouncing off the walls a little bit. <laughs> you've, you've obviously been working from home a lot longer than all of us. Do you have any tips on how to sustain that way of working over a longer period? Yeah. Um, boringly, I mean, you know, probably uh, many people have said this to you already, but one of the things that you must try and do, I find, is to set a time to get up every morning and get up at that time. Because <laughs> it's so easy <laughs> to go, oh, I can get up any time I want. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm an I'm a, um, inveterate um, uh, snoozer. I mean, I love a siesta. I've always said I was born and live in the wrong country where that sort of thing is allowed you know some people say oh you can have a 10 minutes on the, on the sofa it's like no i'm not that guy i like to actually get in the bed <laughs> and, have a, and have a proper sleep <laughs> so it's sort of allowed in the mediterranean and various other parts of the world but somehow in the uk that's frowned upon so what i try to do is get up at a certain same time every morning and establish a routine of doing the work also choose a particular place in the house to do it so um you know mm. Try not to sort of sit in your kitchen at your kitchen table with all the temptations therein and, and try to write, try to have a workspace. Obviously, for everyone, it's not possible to do that. Um, so yeah, you, yeah. you do what you can. But routine and, and a workspace, I find, helps. The question I've I've asked every writer on the show. So, you know, we're, we're going through a quite incredible moment in history right now. Do you look at all of this and think, I, I, I want to write about this time? Yes. And um, I, when it first began, when the lockdown started in earnest, I think that was early March, if I'm correct. 
it, there was a sense that there was a kind of oh this is unusual this is scary this is apocalyptic almost mm. and um you know any writer who thinks deeply about things will will naturally be drawn to subject like that so first of all i started i mean I, you know i keep a diary so i started to sort of note down my daily impressions or feelings or thoughts on on situation and quickly because we're also very opportunistic i was thinking well is there something more meaningful that can be got from mm. this and i i find myself sketching out a long essay which um i never ended up writing but i, I sketched it out and then i realized that sometimes actually or i remembered that sometimes things have to just happen or you have to experience them and it's usually a lot longer a lot later uh, in the process or much after the event that you actually write about it so it's you know writing is as much to do with thinking and digesting and um, allowing things to percolate as it is to do with um, putting pen to paper so I'm not quite in a pen to paper stage yet but I'm sure I will be We'll come on to your incredible feature-length drama very, very shortly. But in the programme, there are some quite affecting moments on on video chat. And I, I, was, I was watching it last night, and I think the way I reacted to those scenes are possibly different to how I would have reacted perhaps 11 weeks ago. I mean, I remember when I first got a smartphone with video chat. I was dead excited about it because it was like the Jetsons or something. I remember never, never using it. But now I use video chat so much as a way to keep connected to people, to work, to family and to friends. And that's what Anthony does in in the program. Have you been using video chat to keep connected? Yeah, uh, and I I didn't, a bit like you, I wasn't... You know, whenever I used to watch TV programs and I'd see them, you know, using technology or I often used to say, God, that's a really lazy device. Or I know it's part of our everyday existence, but it's not particularly dramatic or interesting. Yeah. Now it becomes such a part of our lives. Um, you can imagine any 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 show you watch now, which is, which is vaguely contemporaneous without some kind of device uh, being used for, for, for keeping in contact with the world would seem a bit odd. But it's ironic that the scene that you mentioned actually obviously predates the lockdown. Yeah, yeah. This was a device we used primarily because it would have been the only way for my brother to keep in touch with my mother uh, uh, in Jamaica. So it takes on a different meaning now in light of the of the coronavirus. But of course, uh, yeah, I, I find myself using it more and more now, particularly for meetings, conference calls and so on. It's, it's, it's a strange situation even, even now because everyone uses a slightly different um, approach. Some people like to use their cameras, some people don't. Some people like to use Zoom, some people have to use by law uh, Microsoft Teams yeah. or some, you know, some other device. So depending on who you have to talk to, sometimes I mean, the amount of downloads I've had to do, and uh, the amount of one <laughs> free trial, I mean, I'm on a one free trial right now on Squadcast. <laughs> Just <laughs> um, but the thing is, you have to remember to cancel your subscription later on. So yeah, so it's, 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 it's getting to grips with technology um, out of necessity necessity but it's it's amazing how quickly you can get used to i guess what they call the new norm oh i've burnt through so many free trials and <laughs> squad cast if you if you are listening i i'm on another seven day trial i don't know how i keep doing them but <laughs> you must have a, a thousand aliases if you see me in the street after this just call me kevin please don't 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 call me by my real name I, there's, there's too many aliases out there now I'm officially Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been doing all the Zoom activities, like drinks with friends, pub quizzes. I think it was fun at first, but the more I do yeah. it and the more disheveled we all become, it starts to look a bit like watching an apocalyptic episode of The Brady Bunch. 
<laughs> or Celebrity Squish, am I eating? It's like, it's like um, you know, the quiz, you, it's, it's, it's strange, isn't it? It's, it's a bit like someone you you end up going out with that you didn't, didn't initially fancy. You know, you resist at the beginning, and then they get you, and you think, this is fantastic. And then by the end, you're like, no, I go back to my original thought. I'm not really feeling this. <laughs> And it is, I'm at that stage now where we, you know we, we we my girlfriend and I we do a um, a weekly quiz on Zoom. It's the the numbers have grown, you know, people dropping in and out. But <laughs> every time we get to one, the, 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 who's going to do the next one? We sort of sit and look at each other. And there's a sort of long silence. Now, are we actually going to do another one of these? <laughs> someone, someone volunteers. We go, oh, all right, I guess we're back here next week then. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, but it's but but once you once you're in it, it, it it's actually quite diverting. I quite enjoy it. I think TV has been a lifesaver during this time. What have you been watching on TV recently? Oh, well, I've actually got a list, but we can't get through them all. But I just thought, just in case I forget any of the really good ones that I've seen, um, I've literally just finished The Last Dance, which is the um, documentary on Netflix about Michael Jordan and Chicago Bulls, which is it's strange, actually, because um, we're used to binging on TV now and watching things yeah. in, if you like, box set form. But um, I don't know if it's because of the lockdown and the and the and the way we're consuming things so rapidly that there's a shortage of new material that ne- uh, Netflix decided to release this two episodes at a time. <laughs> so I found myself having to wait, you know, one week from one week to the next for the next two episodes. Anyway, it's finally finished. I think it's about nine of them in total, or, or, or ten. And it's just a brilliant series about the Chicago Bulls because everyone's heard of the Chicago Bulls. Um, yeah, yeah. Jordan, but. By watching this documentary, it made me realize why they become such a world, worldwide brand and why he's considered to be such an icon. Um, I'm not particularly a big basketball fan. I mean, I'm about as, as anybody else. But after watching that, then, then I realized. And it's a terrific example of how someone comes from nothing to become who he became, but also sport in America and also African-American culture and how sport interconnects with music and the film and entertainment industry and so on so really really insightful and uh, one of the best sporting documentaries if you can call it that i've seen in a long while and it seems to really really get into who who michael jordan is as well it's not Uh, just about the basketball it's very much about the man and the myth behind it but also it doesn't shy away from i guess the darker areas of his life as well no, not at all, which I found quite surprising because when I say quite surprising, I didn't even know he had. This is what I mean. I was probably ignorant. Um, I didn't even know about a lot of that stuff, you know, the gambling, the the bullying that he's often accused of, that he was accused of at the time for, of his teammates. His whole persona was about winning at all costs. And I think it's admirable at the same time, as you can imagine, his teammates and those around him who probably found it a bit off-putting. Um, yeah. Obviously, I didn't know anything about his um, his father dying. I mean, not to give anything away, but, you know, the way, the circumstances, that was quite shocking. Uh, the relationship he had with his security guard. These these are really in, insightful things. But pro- primarily, his background, you know, where he came from, I didn't I didn't know anything about that. And uh, that that was really insightful, and the fact that he so heavily contributes to it, you know, in the interviews that he gives, his recollections of things, some of the best scenes in there when he's handed the device, um, uh, you know, the iPad by the interviewer and said, right, this person's got this to say about you, and this person's got that to say about you, and you can see he's like, oh, really? What are they saying? And he sort of he takes it sort of <laughs> agely, and you can you can see that there's a fighter in him because if they if they decide to sort of 
you know, um, go up against him, even though he's retired and has nothing to do with basketball. He's prepared to come out fighting again. So he's just got that. It's just got that um, that fighting spirit. A fantastic um, psychological portrait, I think. Um, yeah. yeah. Of- of a sporting legend. I have to say, my viewing habits have changed completely over this period. I say completely. I'm still re-watching Parks and Rec over and over and over again. But what about yours? Have yours changed at all? I watch TV quite selectively normally, but during this period, it's gone from... It's not so much selective as as, as, as sort of indiscriminate. So I've gone from one extreme to the other. So, I, I you know, not everything has stuck, but some of, the, some of the things that have stuck have been the one that I've just mentioned. But also, I've, I've really heavily got into... Some some good dramas have been on. Like, I watched Devs. I don't know if you've seen it, but... Oh, it's really good, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I like Alex Garland anyway. Some people find him deeply pretentious, and a lot of his work... Mm. You know, it's a bit Marmite-like. You take it or you leave it. But yeah. I remember, I remember Alex Garland. I really, I read The Beach. That's the first time I'd ever heard of him, which was a terrific novel. It just so happens that I was actually traveling in Thailand at the time. It's just one of those things that people used to pass around, like, you know, with a sort of evangelical look in it. Oh, you must read this. You must read this. <laughs> um, and then there was a long gap when there was, he wasn't heard from. And then he came out with yeah. um, the, the um, post-apocalyptic films. And then he turns up doing these films uh, like um, Ex Machina and now, and now Devs, which is kind of similar. And um, I found it really, really interesting. I mean... If you are a quantum physicist um, and you're into quantum mechanics, then you probably find that it's like quantum mechanics for beginners. <laughs> but if you're not like me into that stuff, I found it absolutely fascinating. And um, and but of course, it's a treatise or a critique on on Silicon Valley and um, yeah and uh, and modern technology and how it's taken over our lives and the dangers therein. So from that point of view, I watched it with 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 interest. I thought the performances were fantastic. I loved the way they shot it, the use of music. Oh, the music is incredible, yeah. Yeah, really, really good. Um, and, you know, he makes good use of silence. And and it's, I, I call it, I came away from it thinking this is a sort of thinking person's adult version of a sci-fi story, less to do with the technology and more to do with the impact it has on human beings. So, yeah, really good, I thought. But on the other end of the spectrum, I watched something which I thought was highly entertaining, which was the quiz, you know, which is obviously about um, oh, yeah. the air scandal. And again, I remember when that happened at the time. I don't know if you remember. I, I wasn't a fan of the show, but I remember that news story. <laughs> I remember thinking, you can't make this up. You mean someone coughed and gave away the answer? How the hell did that happen? <laughs> Well, this drama really kind of helped me to understand it. I found I thought, I thought it was really interesting and very entertaining. I actually had James Graham on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and we were chatting all about quiz. And I think one of the most interesting things about the show is so many dramas bill themselves as untold stories. But I thought I knew everything about this story, and then they brought in this incredible syndicate. This. <laughs> collection of quiz fanatics that took the biggest show on tv for five million pounds i thought that was just incredible yeah me too totally unaware i mean even when the program makers were saying oh wait a second is this actually legal are they allowed to do this and of course they were you know fans of the show getting together forming a syndicate and going right we're going to take this lot down so this is how we're going to do it i mean you know the guy again without giving too much away who invented that machine to sort of like you know get past the past his finger round i mean genius <laughs> <laughs> 
there's some lovely scenes in between, you know, interaction between him and his wife when he's kind of, she comes into the garage and he's there kind of fiddling away with it. She's like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> um, I loved all that. And talking over the hedge, you know, in sort of, you know, hushed tones and all this sort of stuff. Very, very funny. You know, the tongue was very firmly in the cheek. They're, you know, very, very good scripts. <laughs> very firmly in the cheek. And it, it's the only way to play a show, um, a drama like that, because you, you couldn't make it up, really. Oh, it was so good, wasn't it? I would highly recommend anyone watches Quiz. It's so, so good. Stephen, have you had the headspace for reading during this period? It's a question I ask every guest, and as I say every single week, I just haven't had the headspace for reading right now. Pretty tragically, my mind starts to wander when I read the label on a beer can. <laughs> well, I mean, again, as reading is a habit, um, like everything, you fall in and out of it at various points of your life. And I, because I do a lot of writing, I often don't have the time to, to, to read for pleasure, if you like. But that's another thing that the lockdown has provided. You know, we've got time now to, you might not read a book from cover to cover. I've got a friend, a mm. writer, who said to me, when he was a younger man, he used to make the mistake of reading a book from cover to cover. But I actually now, <laughs> I actually now do that. <laughs> so I, 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 when I was talking to another writer friend of mine, I asked him what you were reading. And um, he sort of paused and he said, don't judge me, but I am <laughs> reading, um, I think he's reading Descartes. And I said, oh mm. my God. Yeah, I said, well, you're really, you're really not going to judge me there because I'm, I'm battling my way through <laughs> a history of Western philosophy, which I have literally <laughs> right on my left hand side. <laughs> and this, I mean, I, it's, it's surprising to, to, to admit this or to, to hear myself saying it, but it's extremely engaging and um, even funny at times. Um, Russell, Russell's tone is, 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 there's something about his tone which I find quite, he doesn't hesitate to um, take down the received wisdoms or dismantle the received wisdoms about all these so-called great philosophers. And um, obviously he's a historian as well, so he's able to situate all of them in their historical context, which for me is important. Absolutely fascinating. It's a mammoth book, but I'm getting through it. Um, but I've also reading a bit of fiction as well and, and some other things as i said i was watching your feature length drama sitting in limbo last night fortunately you are the only person that can see me at the moment because if you look at my eyes i was awake a lot of last night thinking about it it's such a powerful piece of tv and it's so timely Stephen, can you tell us what it's all about Okay, so the Windrush scandal is the backdrop, if you like. Those group of West Indians who came to the UK in the 50s and 60s, either as young adults or as children with, with their parents, uh, or whole families in some cases, and uh, settled in the UK. Rightly so, um, they were uh, seen as citizens of the, of, of the British Empire, uh, and it's, uh, obviously it's, co it's former colonies. Um, they were invited here after the war, um, as many people probably know, to help to rebuild the country after the war. So my parents came over during that, during that period, and my brother, I have three brothers, one of my brothers is, is, is one of the people who came over during that period as well. So that's, if you like, uh, the Windrush generation in a nutshell. Now, obviously, jump forward to 2016, we're living in a different time. Um, these people have been here 50-odd years, and the government has um, uh, seemingly, um, well, politics, I guess, if you like, or the climate, the culture has lurched towards the right, and we're now in an age where immigration is seen as something that we need to get under control. It's pre-Brexit, it's UKIP, people are looking for scapegoats, and so... Obviously, at this time, people tend to look at the, the other in our communities. So the government have introduced these policies to try to get net migration down to well, as low as they can from the hundreds of thousands in 
uh, Cameron's famous phrase, to the tens of thousands, um, which means rounding up anybody who's considered to be illegal in the country. Now, obviously, that unfortunately included anybody who didn't have documentation or documentary evidence to prove that they were allowed to stay here. And unfortunately, that included hundreds, thousands of people who came over here originally from the Caribbean in the 50s and 60s. So the scandal broke. I mean, the gentleman was, I think, probably the, the first, well, was the first mainstream journalist to to, to write about it. And um, this, it's my story, um, our film, is a fictionalized version of what happened to my brother. Unfortunately, he arrested twice, detained twice, and threatened with deportation. And the drama is a fictionalized version of that. When the full extent of the Windrush scandal was first revealed to the public, I have to admit, Stephen, I read so much about it, including the Amelia Gentleman Guardian article about Anthony. I watched a lot about it. And yet there was so much in Anthony, your brother's story, that I still hadn't fully grasped. What do you want people to take away from this incredible story? The, the human cost, I guess. Um, obviously, from, from, from my point of view, this is a very personal story because it's, it happened to my brother. And so from the family's point of view, we are still kind of living through it, if you like. But it's also intended to stand stand in for all the other people who were similarly affected, a representative of, if you like. So that's that's what I would like. But 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 I want them to... Um, get a real sense of the human cost because once you go behind the headlines we're talking about real people often with the coronavirus mm. for instance when you when you hear the daily statistics being trotted out by Downing Street and, and the health officials they talk about thousands of people dying every day and the numbers are going down so yesterday it was 600 today it's 500 years yeah. you can kind of look you can kind of get um, you know drawn into a false sense of security forgetting that these are actually real people so that's the kind of thing i mean with with this um thousands of people are affected but what actually happened to them and who are they um and the specifics of of this narrative you know it wasn't just the windrush generation who were um caught up in it but the effects were felt by them more keenly because of the nature of it and also the fact that they've been here for 60 years. Some of them, my brother's been here for 50, yeah. um, consider themselves to be British. And it's this idea that you, you, you're no longer a part of a society that you always thought was 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 home. So it's aimed, it's, it's representative of the West Indian community, but it could speak to anybody who found themselves illegally um, detained and threatened with deportation, uh, whether they come from Eastern Europe or Africa or India or wherever else. So yeah, that, it's a it's a very human story. The nitty gritty of it, you know, what happens when you're told that you can't go to work? What happens when you're told that you can't use the health, the health service? What happens when you're told that you can't sign on? Um, you can't claim any kind of benefit. Uh, what happens when you are forced to rely on the charity of of, of of strangers or throw yourself on the mercy of your family who themselves are struggling yeah, yeah. you know they're just about managing if you like which is very much what what my brother's demographic is so that's what i'd like them to take away these are real people uh, and this is a real um scandal and and it should never really have been allowed to happen in britain you know it's a country that i've always been very proud very proud of I've been fortunate to travel around the world and often, you know, when I see how people live and I see some of the things that they have to experience, you know, it's then that you realise that actually Britain, for all we like to do it now, is actually a great country to live in. But that was a period of time when I I wasn't so proud to be British, to be honest. It's such an immensely personal story to put onto screen. How did you go about 
telling your brother that you wanted to write this? Because in the show, at least, he does appear to be a private person. Yeah, he's very private. Um, You know, he's not, it's not in his nature to take things personally. He's always, you know, when he first, when it was all happening to him, it was like, well, it must be a big mistake. You know, they they must think, they must have it wrong. It was a long time before he realised that this was a a systemic problem and an institutional problem. And even then he was saying, well, obviously, they, you know, we, we've fallen through the cracks and somehow the government will have to rectify it. But he, he, he's determined not to see this as a as, as personal uh, to him and so not to see it as a race issue. As the scandal became more um, widely known and the, 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 the numbers of people involved became evident, he started to view it differently. And I think when I first t- started talking to him about his story, I think he was... He was not sure if he wanted people to know the nitty-gritty of his own personal experience, but I think he was keen to get his story out there, which is why someone like Amelia Gentleman and The Guardian, they, they you know, yeah. to, to get stuff out of him that was important for people to know. So the actual, uh, the politics of it, if you like, um, and, and the system and how it treated him. But in terms of the emotional effect and... and um, and his life and his, if you like, his backstory and how he came to the country and what his, what his life has been like up to that point, that's a little bit more different. He's much more private in that way. So it was, yeah, we, yeah. we approached it, we approached it with, with caution. And as, you know, obviously I'm his brother as we've gone along, uh, the more conversations we had, the more, the more um, faith he started to show in me. He was obviously keen to be represented in the best light possible, him and his partner, Janet. And once we were able to, and the producers were able to convince him that no, no, this is you know, we, we, you know, we, if you're not happy with it, we're not interested in doing it. So yeah, and he he became convinced, and then once he became convinced, he actually came on board and was actually a consultant on the show. So yeah, it's been a very interesting journey for him to see how a TV drama is made based on facts, and obviously his his own story. And uh, he's been in the media so much now. He's, a, he's you know, he's, a, he's an old hand at it now. But this is a different <laughs> kettle of fish altogether. This is a TV drama where people are playing him. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So he's been involved in all stages of the process, including, the, you know, the, the auditions and the casting and the rehearsals and, and the filming. And has he seen it now? Yeah, yeah, he's seen it and he's very happy with it. Um, he's obviously a bit nervous, like we all are, about um, about uh, how it's going to be received. But I think he's quietly optimistic that it will have the required impact, uh, at least you know, from, from our point of view. I think one of the most affecting things about the programme is it doesn't just deal with the traumatic events themselves. As you say, your brother was detained two times, threatened with deportation. It's about those psychological toil of... Of, of this event on his life. You know, it's it's really a story of post-traumatic stress disorder. His experience is compounded after the event. How is he doing now? He's getting better. Um, one of the things that uh, prompted this whole process was uh, he wanted to go and see our mother in Jamaica in, so this is since 2015, and he hadn't been back to Jamaica, as I said, since the 60s. Um, and she was getting a bit frail and, and obviously elderly, and um, but he was prevented from doing so. Anyway, he's managed to get out there now. Been out there twice yeah. since since the the scandal broke. Um, the first time, <clears throat> first time he went with his partner, and uh, my other brother was down there, and there was a sort of it's quite emotional. It was quite a reunion. Um, there was a TV yeah. crew, and you know, so it was still very much part of his story of being detained and threatened with deportation. So, but the second time he went back. Yeah. He and I went together. So this was um, December of um, last year. And um, my mother lives in a very rural part of Jamaica. And, um, you know, we you can you can be 
feel cut off from the rest of the world. It's quite an isolated community. So it was just family. And um, he's he's definitely, ironically enough, reconnected with his Jamaican culture, his Jamaican roots in a very, very um, uh, noticeable way. He's <laughs> out Jamaican, it's yeah. all of us. And, uh, but I think, I think reconnecting with mum has really helped him to sort of come out the other side because that was the reason for him wanting to get his passport in the first place and so on. Obviously, the story never ends because, you know, the, the conversation matter hasn't been resolved yet. And, you know, the film is about to come out. So, you know, it's ongoing, but he's, he's, he's always retained his sense of humour and that's very much still to the fore. And um, we, oft, we often, you know, tease him about various aspects of it. You know, it's like... You know, you're a big star now. Don't forget us when you're like, you know, getting your, your sword put across your shoulder by the queen and all that sort of stuff. You know? <laughs> um, and um, that that has really helped him. The combination of family and his, his, his natural sense of humor and natural sense of acceptance and forgiveness uh, has helped with that PTSD because there's no doubt in my mind that he, he has suffered PTSD from it. And we tried to get a little yeah. bit into the film without dwelling on it too much. I think what the program really shows in sort of detail like I've never seen is this clinical process of how it strips away his humanity. It starts small with a letter to say that the government denies who he says he is. He's handed and then he's handed a card with a photo on it. But then it gets bigger and bigger and every time an official says claim or allege, those words hit like anvils and it must have done for people who've heard it yeah those are the things that hit hit hurt him the most the idea that no matter what he said he just there was always a sense that they just didn't quite believe him and this is where i think the the institutional racism as a charge holds some water because you know when you when you um think about all the evidence that he provided, um, all the things that he was telling them that he'd been in this country since the 60s and um, he came up on his mother's passport and this, that and the other. And the idea that, you know, you're just going to dismiss all that and say, you know, you're alleged children or you're, you know, you're alleged school mm. or you're alleged schoolmaster and all this sort of stuff. It's just like, well, those, those are carefully chosen words. And I, I just think that, you know, even though even even his accent, the way he spoke, everything about him suggested that this was a man who's obviously deeply rooted in the British um, uh, culture. He's obviously a, a, yeah. a, a Brit. Um, so to, to using those words to him, you know, it's 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 not too much to extrapolate from that that this is this is um, this is more than meets the eye. But once the government had gone down that road, it was very difficult for them to come back from that. So yeah, that kind of Orwellian uh, dystopian nature of the um, various government agencies, in this case, mostly the Home Office, was something that we wanted to get into the film as much as possible, how the system is impersonal and um, unfeeling and rides roughshod through through people's lives um, without so much of the backward glance and, and justified in the name of, well, we're just doing our job. This is just a process. This is not personal. And you know you get passed off, passed off onto one person, then passed off onto another, um, and you can get lost in a maze of bureaucracy, and it's just dehumanising and soul destroying. And that is, without that aspect uh, of the story in the film, I just don't think it would have the same impact, because we can all imagine what it's like to get lost in the system. Well, there's an incredible scene where Anthony has to leave uh, their house because of the financial toll it has had. And then you see the marks on the walls from the photos that have been there for years. And those are the marks that the government are denying happened. I mean, that was that was a very moving scene to, to watch. Yeah, actually, you know, sometimes the beauty of a um, 
TV and film, uh, the visual, if you like, the, the image, is that it can say so much more than words. Those of us who are old enough to have moved house or, you know, um, have had possessions that we've had to pack up and, 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 and take somewhere else. We know that moment when you just, there's just a momentary pause before you leave the house for the, for the last time. You have a little look around. And it's the things that you notice um, that you probably hadn't noticed because they've been covered up by your possessions. In this case, it's the marks that are left on the wall by photographs. They say so much because they wouldn't have been there if they hadn't been there so long. So, yeah, carefully chosen images like that, we hope, say so much more than mere words could. There are a few moments watching the programme when I when I physically gasped, as you've alluded to, when Anthony is asked whether he would consent to a paternity test. Yeah. Writing scenes like that must have been very difficult to write. Yeah, I mean, I think you've got to... I have always two hats on when I'm approaching any piece of writing. It's the, well, I'm approaching any piece of writing which is based on facts or factual, uh, you know, events. It's, it's, it's a question of making sure that you uh, are true to the story. So would this or did this happen? And then if it didn't, if you are taking dramatic license, what's, what's the reasoning behind it? What are you trying to get across? This was one of those situations where you think, well, it did happen because we did our research and we know that these things happen to people that, you know, they were, they, they were, they were um, questioned about whether or not these, these, these claims they were making were true, whether they did actually have families here, whether they did have children here, whether they were born where they say they were born, whether they went to school where they say they went to school and so on. And you, you don't want to lay it on too thick with a trowel. So you carefully choose the right moment to put in something like that and hope it hits home. And this is one of those situations. As it alludes to at the end of the programme, it's been years since this happened. We're in June 2020. No compensation has been given for anything that has happened. So this story is by no means finished. What what would you like to happen next? Well, to, from, from the point of view of the, the drama, I'm hoping that it will, as I said earlier on, concentrate people's minds as to the severity of what happened and 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 to allow them for a brief moment in time to think about the people who were actually affected. In this case, my brother, but like I said, his story is representative of, of, of so many others. And then um, concentrate the minds of the powers that be to um, speed up the compensation process because so many people are still suffering, not just obviously psychologically and um, emotionally, but they're also in dire straits financially. And then the third thing I think, uh, uh, you know, which would be good to see, you know, the report into the Windrush scandal came out a few weeks back and became buried, understandably so, under the blanket coverage of the coronavirus. But I would like to see that brought back to the, into the public domain and, and examined for the important document that it is, because there were some damning findings in there and they haven't really yeah. been analysed, debated, at least not in any mainstream way and um however that comes about i'm not quite sure but that would be something i would like to see uh, so we can right the wrongs and 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 make sure that it doesn't happen again i was, I was going to say one of the things that came out of the windrush scandal that i was you know most of the things were, were negative but one of the positive things i remember thinking about at the time was how united the vast majority of the country were in condemning the the government and the, the the policies that they were pursuing at the time yeah. for how they have allowed it to affect the Windrush. I think most of us, most Brits, you know, fair-minded, were absolutely appalled. 
So I'm, I'm, I'm confident that the film will be seen by those people in the same way. Stephen, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed chatting to you. Thanks very much. Really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for having me on. A huge thank you to Stephen for joining me today. Depending on when you listen to the podcast, Sitting in Limbo is on BBC One at 8.30pm on Monday the 8th of June and then on iPlayer. And if you want to learn more about this scandal, The Unwanted, The Secret Windrush Files is on BBC Two at 8.15pm on the 13th of June and then also on iPlayer. As Stephen says in the show, the report into the Windrush scandal was released in March, but then coronavirus hit and it is a story that is now not getting told. But it must. I really hope Sitting in Limbo gets the audience it needs and it restarts the conversation and gets the compensation to the people who deserve it. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. And hello to all the new listeners. We had an incredible week last week. Please, if you haven't already, subscribe and rate and review. Follow us at socials at Quarantine Break. I'll be back very, very soon. But in the meantime, please stay indoors. <laughs>